what if the worst had happened in those following days? What if um, someone had gotten hurt? What if a police officer had been uh, put in a hospital? Uh, what if uh, when I had an opportunity to do something, I had waited and we had unthinkable happen over the coming days, even though there was all this warning that it was possibly coming, um, I would have worn that in a way that we would certainly be talking about in a forum such as this. Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, the seminal moment of the inquiry. Yeah, a situation that was not um, being controlled by police. We were seeing things escalate, not things get under control. It wasn't that they just wanted to be heard. They wanted to be obeyed. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau takes the stand in defense of his use of the Emergencies Act. When did he make the ultimate decision? And did he have second thoughts about invoking the act? With special coverage of the Prime Minister's testimony, including opposition reaction, and our strategy session, we'll dig into the details of the decision laid out before the Commission this week. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. Had you made up your mind already? No. Um, I certainly... I was a, a long way down the road of um, realizing that it was um, it was probably uh, the path we needed to take, but I did not make up my mind until uh, the note from the clerk was in front of me, and it was in black and white that the uh, pub public service uh, made a formal recommendation that I invoke the Emergencies Act. After 30 days of testimony, 76 witnesses, and thousands of pages of documents, it all came down to today. The Prime Minister of Canada explaining to the inquiry and to Canadians why he believed invoking the never-before-used Emergencies Act was the right decision. We heard about detailed discussions from the Cabinet table right to the Incident Response Group and how Justin Trudeau reflected on the historic step he was about to take after the country's top public servant told him the threshold had been met. There's a lot to unpack from today's testimony, and we're going to start today with CTV's Annie Bergeron-Oliver. Annie, you were there listening to it all. Take me back to that moment and his reflection about when he was about to invoke the Emergencies Act. What was his calculation? Well, essentially, the prime minister said that he had not made his decision until sort of hours before they actually decided to hold this press conference and invoke the act officially. He said sort of the final step in that decision came around 340 on the 14th when the clerk of the Privy Council, as you just mentioned, the top public servant, wrote to him that he believed that invoking the Emergencies Act was the right step. The prime minister said at that point he took into consideration that advice, plus the fact that CSIS had encouraged the government to do it that cabinet was on side, that caucus was on side, that he had had the meeting with the first ministers. And even then, the prime minister said he took a moment for pause to figure out what would be the consequences of not going forward with the act. Mm -hmm. He said he wanted to understand the weight of this decision. And he said, ultimately, what it came down to was um, he said he had an ability to end the occupation 
And he said he feared that if he did not go through with it, that there could be potential injuries or deaths or that this occupation could continue going on for much longer. And so the prime minister said that would be a weight he'd have to carry. And ultimately, he had a tool at his disposal to be able to end this. And that's why he moved forward. And considering at that time there was this enforcement plan that he had mm -hmm. seen or not really seen, but also talked about um, how he didn't think very highly of it. Why not? Yeah, so that actually got a lot of attention today. So apparently on February 13th, so the day before the Emergencies Act was invoked, there was this operational plan that had been presented uh, to Brenda Lucky. She was aware of it. It was on behalf of Ottawa Police. And the Prime Minister was briefed about it. The Prime Minister today testified that he felt that plan was inadequate, that he said did not have any clear uh, plan about mm -hmm. how it would actually end the occupation. He said there were just a lot of details that were sort of to be determined. Uh, that's something that the Ottawa Police the lawyers today took issue with, saying that, you know, basically it came out that the prime minister didn't do a line-by-line -line review of this plan. He said that wasn't really his purview, his ability, that he was briefed on it by experts. And one of the lawyers even said, well, perhaps you were not briefed properly by Brenda Lucky because there was a plan in place. And perhaps you should have let that plan, you know, give give police the authority in a few days to let that go through. What the Prime Minister said is throughout this entire three or four week convoy uh, here in Ottawa and in Coots, that they had heard a lot of times about there were plans in place and movements were going to happen to end it. And the Prime Minister said sometimes other plans had moved forward and there had been actual action. And in some cases, nothing materialized. So he said it didn't feel like it was an, an adequate plan with clear steps. And so that's why he didn't really take it too seriously. And they decided based on the advice to move forward with the act. And we all know what happened after that. Ottawa got cleared up and so did mm -hmm. the Ambassador Bridge. That had happened before, but CTV's Andy Bergeron Oliver, thank you so much for making the time Thanks. once again today. Appreciate it. Uh, just over, for just over six hours, the Prime Minister gave us some insight into his decision-making process when it came to handling the protests right across the country. It was consistent with what his cabinet has said this week. So how that shaped Commissioner Rouleau's report, but perhaps more importantly, how will it shape the political discourse going forward? Joining me now to talk about that are Liberal MP for downtown Ottawa and Emergency Preparedness Parliamentary Secretary Yasser Nakfi and Conservative MP Larry Brock. He's a member of the Special, special Joint Committee on the Declaration of the Emergency. Now, we did invite the NDP to join this panel. We were told none of their MPs were available. But thank you both for being here. Mr. Nakfi, I'm going to start with you. The Prime Minister testified today that very early on there were concerns about the convoy and how different it would be from other protests this city has seen, and more specifically, your riding. Now, that lasted for weeks, leading to the blockades at border crossings and angering the White House. If this was such a concern so early on, why didn't the federal government do something sooner to prevent this from getting out of control? Well, I, uh, thank you. Uh, I mean, I I think the Prime Minister was very clear in terms of uh, the kind of engagement federal government had in that entire, during that entire period from, from the very beginning. Um, you know, the, I had spoken to the Prime Minister and I was in, as a local member of Parliament, was in con constant uh, contact with other ministers like Blair and Mendocino, working along with my other uh, colleagues. But we also had to be, of course, respectful of um, Ottawa Police Service, who's responsible to ensure that uh, citizens and our city is, is safe. But it was very clear after uh, almost two weeks of that occupation that it continued on, that something had to be done. And, and of course, the Prime Minister and his cabinet had to, had to really weigh all the factors, as we heard from him 
and other cabinet uh, ministers doing the commission's uh, testimony uh, to make the decision as to what steps federal government can took. And it was it was the big one, which was to invoke the Emergencies Act. But it was clearly had to be done because the, the <clears throat> occupation in Ottawa was illegal. It was not peaceful, not to mention the blockades we were seeing at uh, the borders in Windsor and Coots and other places. The, the fact that uh, weapons were found um, in, in, in Coots and there was the concern that some of those blockades of our borders may happen again. And that's why it was really important uh, to invoke the Emergencies Act. And the proof is that the occupation ended and the blockades did not happen again. But with, mis with respect, Mr. Nakfi, I mean, there were text messages that showed Minister Lametti offering up or at least bringing up the specter of the Emergencies Act on January 30th. So why did it take until the 14th of February? Well, as, I think as, as we've heard, I mean, emergencies, invocation of Emergencies Act is a, is a very significant uh, uh, step. It's something that has never been done. So um, the government had to take uh, all uh, uh, necessary caution and due diligence in order to make uh, that decision. But we were just So it wasn't the pressure from waiting. the U.S. We and, and, and the Biden administration to... in that call? Mr. Nakfi, well, so I, it I wasn't the pressure from the U.S. in that call a few days before the invocation that was really the decision maker? That's obviously one of one of the factor because we need to make sure that our economy remains vibrant and the, one of the most busiest uh, border does not uh, remain shut. But I think what was happening in Ottawa and the fact that the federal government was working really closely with uh, City of Ottawa and City of Windsor, for example, for instance, in making sure that they have all the necessary resources to control uh, that illegal occupation uh, and put to an end uh, is an example that the federal government was involved from the very beginning, but was was very cautious in invoking the Emergencies Act and did so at a time when it was clear that there was no other tools left to end the occupation. Mr. Brock, I'm going to bring you in now. Part of the readout of conversations that we had seen over the course of the last few days were between then-interim Conservative leader Candace Bergen and the Prime Minister. It showed Ms. Bergen agreeing with the Prime Minister when he said he was worried about setting a precedent that people need to set up a blockade on Wellington Street to get what they want. So she was on board with that, and she agreed about not setting that precedent. However, we also know that she emailed senior conservatives around that time, saying that she didn't want the conservatives to be asking protesters to go home, adding, quote, we need to turn this into the prime minister's problem. So which one was it? I'll be, I'll be, I'll be very clear, Michael. Firstly, thank you for the opportunity to, to speak to this issue. Uh, our former leader was, was very clear. She was very much engaged with the prime minister in trying to get him to lower the temperature. We have to remember that it was the Prime Minister's uh, extremely uh, negative rhetoric with respect to the characterization of those who were protesting. He was wedging, he was stigmatizing, he was disagreeing with those who disagreed with those health mandates. We, 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 we impressed upon the Prime Minister to engage in some fashion. The protesters wanted a conversation with members of the government. For whatever reason, the government chose not to engage. Other protests on the Hill, they have. In this particular case, they did not. So it was it was a fine line that the uh, former uh, leader of the Conservative Party wanted to make, but she wanted to stress that uh, an effective resolution of this matter required the Prime Minister to lower the dialogue, lower the temperature, and to engage.
is lowering the temperature saying to senior conservatives, we need to turn this into the prime minister's problem? Uh, no, uh, not at all. I think it's a, it's a matter of showing respect. Whether you disagree with uh, those individuals who came to Ottawa from across this country for a number of reasons, it's, it's all about showing fellow Canadians respect. We may disagree with their motivation. We may disagree with their uh, views with respect to the, uh, the federal mandates and the vaccinations, et cetera. But you can get further with showing some respect and some consideration than the way that the, uh, the prime minister and members of his uh, cabinet and his party uh, did so. Mr. Nakfi, I wanted to look forward a bit with you here. What do you think came out of this commission that future governments can learn from when it comes to these types of large scale movements, which let's, let's face it, aren't going away? Yeah, no, that's that's a very good, good question, and I think there is there is a collective learning for for all of us uh, throughout this process. I think what's remarkable and unprecedented about this whole process is the level of transparency that Emergencies Act requires, and the government is falling through in in terms of I mean, just noted, witnessing today that the Prime Minister of Canada uh, testified under oath for six hours. Uh, cabinet conf confidences were, were waived. And there's this extraordinary transparency to ensure that Canadians understand how important decisions like invoking the Emergencies Act were, were made. I am sure that there's going to be recommendations from Justice Ruvalo. Mr. Brock and I are part of a, of a uh, joint parliamentary committee that is going to be also writing report that will allow us uh, hopefully to improve the Emergencies Act but also to ensure that we all collectively learn lessons as to how to deal with situations like this if they happen again in the future. Mr. Brock, I've only got about 30 seconds, but I do want to give you a chance to respond to this. What does this mean about how we engage with these types of protests going forward? Because I think that's important for all politicians to look at going forward. That's a very good question, Michael, and I raised that uh, last evening, actually, at the uh, Joint Special Committee when we had uh, Mayor uh, Dilks or uh, Dilks or Dilkins uh, from Windsor who, who testified. And in my view, I had the first opportunity to question him, and I viewed it almost as a gold standard in terms of the approaches that they took to engage not only the local police service, but the OPP, the RCMP, engaging with federal ministers, engaging with the prime minister. There was a coordinated communication plan. There was daily dialogue with the protesters. They lowered the temperature. They, they continued to uh, recommend that they take appropriate steps to clear the uh, bridge and to allow the uh, free trade to continue between our two nations. And through effective policing, uh, respect, and dialogue that was successfully uh, completed well before the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Larry Brock, Yasser Nakfi, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you. you as well. So that was the political side of today's testimony. What about the policing aspect? Prime Minister Trudeau had a lot to say about that police plan or lack thereof. After the break, we're going to talk about that with the former Ottawa police chief, Charles Bordelot. Stay right there. Power Play will be right back. It's important that we that we stick with what you understood on February 13th. Yes. Okay? So, I, so what I understood I'm, then was that there there was not an adequate. And I, I, I hear you on that. What I'm suggesting to you, based on what you've seen 
was Commissioner Luckey's evidence, but there's a disconnect here. And perhaps what happened, and I'm going to suggest what happened, is that Commissioner Luckey didn't brief you and your cabinet on the fact that there was a complete plan on the 13th. I can't comment on that. So after weeks of testimony, that police response has been under red-hot public spotlights. So how did the police response, or lack thereof, shape the federal government's decision-making? And was there an opportunity for the police to use more tools ahead of invoking the Emergencies Act? Well, let's find out. Joining me right now is the former Ottawa Police Chief, Charles Bordalo. Welcome back, Mr. Bordalo. Really appreciate you making the time. I wanted to first ask you about the Prime Minister and seemingly how dismissive he was about this plan that was ready, but he also admitted that he didn't have time to go through line by line. Do you think he was too dismissive of it? Well, Mike, I think there's a clear frustration, not only with our prime minister, but other ministers on the perceived lack of action or lack of plan by, by the auto police service uh, to deal with this demonstration. And I agree with the, the lawyer from for, uh, former chief slowly that indicated that there's a disconnect here because first of all, the prime minister would have never seen any operational plan presented by any police service. That is confidential information that is not shared outside the walls of police. So he would have been uh, have to rely on briefings that he was getting. And on, on the 13th, you know, my understanding is that the plan was finally signed off by Commissioner Lucky and Commissioner Creek and Chief Slowly was the plan that was used uh, the following week uh, with the resources in place. So it, it looks like he might not have been briefed or improperly briefed that the plan that was signed off on the 13th was, in fact, uh, quite extensive and contained. Uh, all the information. I remember him talking about a lot of parts uh, indicated to be determined to be determined. I, I don't believe he would have a, had access to a plan that would be uh, seen by him that would indicate that. Do you think it was a case of things almost moving too quickly and was the ball all, already rolling downhill by that time? I think that the ball was moving very quickly and there was pressure to resolve this issue because he, he has made it a strong case around the seriousness of what was taking place uh, that would meet the threshold of a public emergency under the Act. Uh, and things were evolving quite rapidly, but there was clear frustration uh, of the perceived lack of action uh, by police and uh, the, the demonstrators uh, still staying there and being very uh, noisy and, and very problematic for the community. And I'm assuming that at that point, I mean, to the, the Prime Minister's point that he was making, he had said that they had heard of plans in the past uh, that could do something in different places, Coots, uh, Windsor, and that sort of a thing. And I imagine at that point, um, he didn't feel like he had the confidence enough to believe that this next plan would be the plan. Absolutely. There were, he cited some examples where, uh, and I recall uh, around you know, public statements by the auto police service that they were they would be imploring implementing a type of strategy of surge contain and arrest yet uh, that was not done they were still jerry cans being brought into the area their bouncy castles and the protesters were getting further entrenched so i can i can see how uh, others from the outside looking in saying that there, there's nothing going on and in fact it's it's getting worse and the, the threat of potential escalation is actually getting more real. Now, we've also heard that Commissioner Lucky thought the police hadn't used every available resource. Do you think there was a missed opportunity here? 
You know, I, I, I've looked at that statement and I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what she meant by that. Uh, you know, their plan was predicated without the Emergencies Act being invoked. So they would have proceeded without the Emergencies Act. But I, I believe that the, the measures that were put in place and uh, under the Emergencies Act uh, were an added uh, benefit to policing in bringing uh, this matter to a successful conclusion, not only to resolving it in the immediacy, but also to stabilize the environment and to prevent others from coming in and shutting off the money uh, flow that was flowing to fund this type of activity. So could they have done it without the act? Probably. Would they have been as successful in, in clearing the, uh, the uh, area and holding it? I'm not sure. And I think hopefully Commissioner Rulo will be able to identify the value added by the Emergencies Act that was was able to help resolve this uh, for for a longer term perspective. We've got less than 30 seconds, but I want to ask you about the road forward. I mean, how important is it to take the lessons learned here, understanding that we may see more of these protests, especially in the capital in the future? Uh, there's no questions that, that, that whatever comes out of the commission will need to be applied uh, by policing and all other government officials. Uh, the communication between uh, multi-government uh, officials, uh, the understanding of what's going on on the, on the ground, uh, the tactics used by demonstrators, uh, the intelligence that needs to be more robust in understanding this movement and what's going on, those are all things that uh, will need to come out of this moving forward. And we've already seen police apply some early lessons learned, even the week after with the demonstrations in Toronto and Quebec City, uh, that they prevented vehicles from being used. So there's there's a lot of things that will should come out of this that will help police and the broader community from a public safety perspective not get us to the same type of situation that we found ourselves in. Former Ottawa Police Chief Charles Bordalo, thank you so much for sharing your insight, not just tonight, but throughout this entire commission. We really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Coming up, taking apart Trudeau's testimony. After more than four hours at the commission, what did we learn about the Prime Minister's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act? Was his time on the stand a success or a failure? Our Friday panel of strategists will dig into today's testimony. Plus, how could this shape Prime Minister Trudeau's legacy? Power Play returns after this. When did you and your government start to become so afraid of your own citizens? That's a very I unfair... I am not, and we are not. That was Prime Minister Trudeau taking questions from Eva Chipyuk, the lawyer for the Freedom Convoy. Today was a rare opportunity to witness a sitting Prime Minister answer pointed questions for more than six hours. So was it mission accomplished for the Prime Minister and his team? Or did he open himself up to more questions about his decision to invoke the Emergencies Act? Let's bring in our strategy session to weigh in. We've got Greg McEachran from Proof Strategies. He leans liberal. Yaroslav Baran, he's from Earnscliff Strategies. And he's bringing us that conservative voice. And we've got the national director of the NDP, Anne McGrath. They're all here in studio. Thank you all for joining us. Greg, let's start with you. So how do people in the PMO and the prime minister, how are they feeling about this today? I would imagine they're feeling pretty good. Um, if I was to use the entire week, we had a number of cabinet ministers, we had senior staff in the prime minister's office and the prime minister. We have seen nothing like this ever in the history of Canada. 
the amount of transparency that we've had. Um, there's been a lot of text messages. I think a lot of us have wondered what our text messages would look like. Perhaps the and thankfully uh, we're not call, yeah. getting called to an inquiry. Yeah and, yeah, and you know, don't ever make a tank joke because some reporters won't get it. But I think overall, if you look at especially like the bigger critics of the liberal government, conservative columnists, conservatives, um, you know, they predicted that this was going to be very bad for the prime minister. And and again, we'll see what happens tomorrow. We've got five hours of testimony to kind of review, but he seemed to handle himself extremely well. Looking at the you know who's left on Twitter. The social media reaction seemed to be very good. People like the former host of this show, Don Martin, who, you know, wrote a kind of a critical column a couple of weeks ago, seemed to say, you know, differently that the, the, the prime minister had acquitted himself well. Yeah. So I think overall it was a good day and it was a good week for the uh, for the PMO. Yaroslav, did he answer all questions that conservatives have or is there still left wanting? Well, it depends how you, you know, how you want to treat the question. Like, did he perform well today? Sure, he did. But he was a drama teacher before politics, so we always expect him to perform well. He performs well. Uh, in terms of what he needed to do and what the government needed to do to satisfy the inquiry, I'm not sure. They're two separate things, making the political case and making the legal case. Sure, he made the political case for his own audience. And like many things in politics, if you're predisposed to liking him and the government, you're going to say... You can cherry pick and say, yeah, sure, see? And if you're predisposed to not liking him or the government, there's enough in there to cherry pick and say, yeah, see? Yeah. But today was actually a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, um, you know, anticlimax. The real day for me was Wednesday with Minister Lametti. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment when the government not only failed to make the legal case, they refused to make the legal case. They said essentially... Because of solicitor-client Yeah, absolutely. Or? Yeah, exactly. So they said basically, um, yeah, I get that according to the CSIS Act, we didn't satisfy the criteria. We've got a separate set of legal documentations that suggest, in our own opinion, we did, but we're not going to share those. So that really kind of jams the commissioner. What's mm -hmm. he supposed to do now? Because it's his role to actually adjudicate the legalities of this. And he was denied really the opportunity to do that. And I wanted to bring you in here. Jagmeet Singh has said that he wanted uh, to hear whether or not the act was really the last option. Do you think in this six weeks of testimony we got the answer to that? Um, I don't know if we got the answer. I mean, we supported the uh, invocation of the Emergencies Act with extreme reluctance, and we saw it as a failure at every level, mm -hmm. the fact that we actually had to invoke it. So the question is whether or not it was necessary or whether there was another way of dealing with it. Some have said that there are, were other ways of dealing with it, but if that's the case, then why weren't any of them in, in play? I mean, right. why did we go through three weeks of that if there were other ways of dealing with it? So my guess, and I'm not a lawyer, is that there is a strong legal case in the sense that uh, it wasn't stopping. You know, I mean, every now and then you'd hear, oh, they're going to put more police on the streets. And I would think, looking out my window, to do what? Walk around? Right. Like more police walking around was not solving the problem. So I think that there were things that were a part of the Emergencies Act that did allow things to actually clear it up. So, um, you know, it... it, it uh, I think that the, the Prime Minister and the ministers, and just throughout the whole six weeks, I think a case can be made, and I, again, I'm not, a, I'm not a judge or a lawyer, right. case can be made that it was necessary, um, but it is terrible that it got to that point in my How view. How much of a hanging question is there then that there was that plan by Ottawa police and that 
you know, today the prime minister sort of batted away, saying it wasn't really a plan if you even looked at it. And then nobody really looked at it, and apparently he didn't look at it. Well, it didn't feel like a plan to me because, as I said, I keep, I keep hearing, oh, they're putting, you know, 200 more police. And I kept thinking, to do what? Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's getting ticketed. Nobody's getting towed. Nobody's getting arrested. Uh, you know, laws are being broken. And it didn't seem like anything was happening. Greg, I wanted to ask you, in terms of legacy for the prime minister, I mean, there are moments in time of a prime ministership that people will remember. How does this go down? Well, you know, at the risk of politicizing this, we, you know, I would really dislike if, if all of a sudden you had liberal cheerleaders who were saying this is a great thing and he should run again, um, because I'm with Anne on this. It should never, ever have come to this. And, you know, what was interesting, we saw that there are other times that the Emergencies Act was, was considered. But, you know, I, I think... Um, my colleagues drive by on the drama teacher. He was also a math teacher. I always wonder why people always pick drama teachers. They can figure that out for themselves. But, you know, he had the job today um, to stay calm and explain why this happened. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of things that have been dispelled. You know, you should have met with, with the convoy occupiers. They've admitted themselves. They didn't know it was who was leading them. Um, the other thing that people say is, well, the, the blockades were already moving. Well, as Dick Fadden, former head of CSIS, said this week, um, that's a really optimistic view that if you think that once they were gone at Coots or Windsor without the act, that they were not going to pop up again. I, I wonder why people have that confidence that they think one and done. I, I don't see yeah. that confidence. Yaroslav, I was going to ask you, does this, all of this after six weeks, shield him from any criticism from the Conservatives on this particular subject? I mean, the, the real test is going to be February 20th when the commissioner presents his report because his job is going to be to say whether, you know, give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. You guys were legit in doing this or you guys weren't legit mm-hmm. in doing it. That's really going to settle the, the legacy questions over this uh, over this issue. And does it have to be that black and white? Do you think that Rouleau will have some shades of gray in there? I suspect there will be shades of gray because there are shades of gray in this. There were, there were an army of lawyers there. And if you listen to them all, they are going to parse every single piece of that. In many cases, uh, in my view of of this is that the convoy lawyers made the strongest case for the imposition of the Emergencies Act. They were terrible. They were gotcha. They were just like they were gotcha. They were uh, par- hyper partisan. They were there to. Um, uh, they behaved like clowns in a lot of cases. Yeah, Yaroslav, you make a point, then I gotta. Get yeah, a sure. Here. At the end of the day, we need to figure out whether this was legally defensible. It's one thing to say something needs to be done. Why won't something do something? And maybe second guessing police agencies on on their plans, but that's not the same as. I will suspend the Constitution because I feel like it, right. or because I've decided that I can. But it didn't suspend the Constitution. Like, yeah. Well, it, it, it doesn't. Certain, it, it doesn't it, suspend it the Constitution. Certain constitutional rights. It, 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 the Constitution, Charter, mm-hmm. all of those things are in the Emergencies Act. That's why yeah. it is a better version of how to deal with emergencies than the previous legislation. And there are strict criteria on when you can and cannot do that, and that's what we're going to find out on February 20th, whether or not this is legit. Right. And we're looking forward to February 20th. One last thing I want to bring up with Greg. On a completely separate note, you were at the commission yesterday. Brendan Miller, the lawyer for the Freedom Convoy, mistook you uh, for someone uh, in a public relations firm, Enterprise Canada, uh, someone that Mr. Miller has repeatedly accused of without providing any kind of evidence of carrying a Nazi flag at the protest. And Enterprise Canada is now serving Mr. Miller with a libel notice over the claims that he made. Now, despite this, Enterprise Canada employee has been receiving death threats about it. So I wanted to ask you, Greg, what happened? I went to the commission to see it myself. Um, knew that we'd be chatting about it tonight. It was, you know, Ottawa's most interesting reality show. And um, Mr. Miller moved over closer to where I was sitting 
and I was in a very um, sparse place. So I got up and left and he started yelling and was following me out and I couldn't figure out he was calling me some name that I didn't quite understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and he obviously mis- mistook me for someone else. And, you know, to Anne's point about the, the convoy lawyers making the case for the government, um, it, it was very intense. And like, I, I, you know, I, I don't, I try not to take myself too seriously, but right. this is very serious. He has accused someone of carrying a Nazi flag and, and kind of by comparison, he accused me of that. I've already gotten a couple of dark tweets about why I was there, um, which is, which are, is, is a little unsettling. But this person came up running at me in my face, not once, but twice. And these are the same people who try to tell us that this was, um, you know, just peace and love. And instead, what they've done is they've hired somebody as a lawyer who has displayed the same tactics and behavior that kept this city and a lot of other places in Canada um, in, in a state of fear for a long time. Um, I, I, I feel a bit sorry for him. Uh, I don't know what's going on with him, and I, I wish him well. But I think he has just proven he made these accusations about somebody I've never met that I'm told is a Pierre Polliver supporter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of all, all the political parties, the conservatives were the ones that were the most supportive of these guys. And yet here it is splashing back on them. I've always said, if you supported the, these guys, if you su- supported the occupiers, you will never get the stench off you. And, and this type of behavior from this lawyer, um, just you know, randomly accusing people of stuff is... I think very typical of the behavior and um, you know, I, I feel bad for him, but I think he's in a heap of trouble. Yeah. Greg, thank you for sharing that experience. Thank you all for being here. I just want to remind viewers that that accusation, by the way, is still unsubstantiated, but I did want to thank our strategy panel, Greg McEachern, Yaroslav Baran, and McGrath. Thank you so much for being with us. Have a great weekend. Uh, coming up, Good news for worried parents about that triple threat of viruses. The federal government has secured more children's medication from foreign sources, but will it be enough to stock empty shelves in Canadian pharmacies? We'll speak to the Canadian Pharmacists Association next on PowerPlay. An additional importation of around half a million units is scheduled for the next three weeks. As we continue to approve increased supply to community pharmacists and retailers, work continues to ensure pediatric hospitals are well stocked and in a position to manage the shortage. Over the coming days, an additional shipment of important acetaminophen from Australia will be coming into the country. More help is on the way. That was the message from Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos. He announced the federal government has secured a boost to its supply of much-needed children's pain medication. An additional 500,000 units of kids' medicine will arrive in Canada over the next three weeks. And a separate shipment of 100,000 units of kids' acetaminophen will arrive from Australia and it will go to hospitals. This comes on top of the more than 1 million bottles of medication already imported from foreign sources. Minister Duclos revealed that about 1.1 million units have been produced domestically so far this month. So is Canada on track to fix its shortage of highly sought-after children's medication? And how has the drug shortage left pharmacists scrambling to keep up with demand, well, joining me right now is Dr. Danielle Pace. She is the Chief Pharmacist Officer for the Canadian Pharmacist Association. Thanks you so much for joining us. We've heard the government announce 
these additional 500,000 doses, and those are specifically earmarked for retail. How much of a difference does that make for pharmacies and for parents? Well, we know that the community uh, is in need of these medications. We've started to see supply appear in pharmacies in pockets of Canada. We're hoping over the next couple of days, we'll see that across the country. I think it's going to be, it's been a really challenging time for caregivers and families. And we're hoping this is going to provide some relief. You know, one of the things that we're continuing to urge parents and caregivers is to only purchase what they need. It's very likely over the next um, little while, we'll continue to see purchase limits in place. In some pharmacies, you will see it uh, being stored behind the counter. And that's really just to manage the supply that we do have on hand. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because it's expected to arrive over the next three weeks, but we're still seeing this surge of flu and RSV. So are you worried that the timing just won't match up? Well, you know what? We we can't predict the future demand. Uh, we're hoping that, um, you know, with this additional supply, the imported supply, it's going to supplement our domestic production, which we know has doubled. It's doubled what it was this time last year, and it's at a record high. And so, um, you know, the one thing that I can say is it, we're, we're gearing up for a rough flu season. And so there are ways to prevent illness. So getting your flu shot, getting your COVID-19 boosters, those are all going to help um, manage the system and help prevent strain on an, on an already um, stressed hospital system. We did speak to the former Canadian Medical Association president, Dr. Catherine Smart, last week about concerns over the distribution of these imports to both rural and remote Canadians. Have a listen to what she said here for a moment. You know, I work in the north in the Yukon and we're far away from any other centers. Um, so it's a real challenge for people in rural and remote parts of the country that already have less access to health care than many people living in urban centers. So I think it's going to be very important from an equity perspective that Health Canada ensures that these medications become available broadly. I, I can appreciate, you know, they have to start somewhere, but it's very important that rural Canadians have the same access to essential medications and health care as other Canadians. So, Doctor, given that, I wanted to ask you how concerned you are that rural and remote pharmacies might be shortchanged in all of this. Well, I think I think equitable access is very much a priority, and we want to make sure that all Canadians, regardless of the postal code that you live in, um, have access to these medications. And I and I know that every measure is being taken to ensure that we get these drugs across the country as quickly as possible. Dr. Danielle Pace, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate this. My pleasure. Coming up, the Emergencies Act inquiry finally comes to an end. So what were some of the key moments from the past six weeks? Laura Friday Press Gallery will look back and give us their plays and misplays of the inquiry. That's next on Power Play. not going to pretend that it's the only thing that could have done it but it did do it and that colors the conversations we're having now uh, with the fact that these could be very different conversations and I am absolutely absolutely serene and confident um, that I made the right choice in agreeing with the invocation 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau reflecting on his historic decision to invoke the Emergencies Act last February. Now, after unboxing this puzzle with thousands of pieces in it six weeks ago, we finally have a picture of what happened behind closed doors as the world watched the occupation of Ottawa. The Commission had some highlights and certainly some lowlights. So where does that leave us now? Well, it's Friday, so you know what that means. But instead of the political plays and misplays of the week, we thought it would be a good idea to look back at the Commission and apply those same critical lenses to every minute of the inquiries. Joining me now, CTV News Senior Digital Parliamentary Reporter Rachel Aiello and Toronto Star Columnist Susan Delacourt, nice to see you both. Uh, Rachel, we're going to start with you. So you've got a um, misplay to hand out to the lawyers who represented the convoy. Uh, and we have some of the video here, Brendan Miller. Um, why are they getting a misplay from you? So I think the convoy lawyers came into this with the biggest opportunity. The protesters came to Ottawa wanting to have a conversation with the federal government, wanting to get their voices heard. And this commission was the closest chance they got to be able to make their case. And while I do think Brendan Miller, for example, was very effective in the early days of questioning, eliciting some interesting responses from witnesses, what we've seen in the last week or so is, I don't know, best described as completely jumping the shark. It just turned into absurdity at points, trying to raise conspiracy theories, you know, kind of storming off the stage. I think it was a real missed opportunity. We saw that again today. Mm -hmm. uh, the lawyer questioning the prime minister, which I think we all thought was going to be like must-see pay-per-view te television, turned into a bit of a wah-wah because it was just, I'm going to read into the record a bunch of people's views uh, and put a couple assertions to you, and that's that. You didn't really get anything from them asking ministers or the prime minister some of the core issues they came to this city with, you know, a year ago, yeah. almost. So I thought that was a real uh, missed opportunity for, from them. Susan, what do you think the thinking was behind that? I don't know. We were talking about this before the show. I think I actually think, uh, and can I please repeat my favorite phrase of the week? It was Justin Ling calling the convoy behavior increasingly weird. Uh, <laughs> and he used the phrase, I think it's a technical term, crazy town banana pants. I know, I've, I've heard of it. It's, yes. it's clinical. It's clinical. <laughs> yes. Um, and it, to me, it started when CSIS was up on Monday. Mm -hmm. And I think CSIS removed the last sort of hurdle that the prime minister had to clear by the CSIS director said, yes, I said this was a national security emergency. And then it did, I don't know if you agree, but it, it did seem that, that the convoy organizers and their lawyer especially just got a little more conspiratorial and started, as Rachel said, reading weird stuff into the record. More like they were playing for their hometown or their base right. rather than trying to talk to people like me who would actually, you know, they had a good hearing. Here. Right. They got it. Uh, they just didn't do it with the people who counted. And, and Rachel, to the point that you're making, not to say a chance of a, of a lifetime, but you were sitting there able to question a prime minister on a decision that he made uh, against everything that you believe in, in terms of that kind of freedom, yet they didn't ask those questions. All you got was, why do you call us racists and misogynists, and don't you think you should resign, which is what happened uh, later after Trudeau left. The lawyer in their kind of closing statements suggested that it's more obvious than ever the prime minister needs to resign. I don't think any of that is helpful dialogue. This is certainly making the case for why them trying to engage during the protests probably wouldn't have been successful. Uh, and so I think, as Susan said, you know, the CSIS director, we think you should invoke the act, his national security advisor, the clerk of the Privy Council, once we had all those pieces which came into the place 
in clear focus by Monday, it was clear to them, I think, that, okay, <laughs> this might be room. a bit baked yeah. in. Yeah. Um, and so now what do we do? We just, like, throw everything in the kitchen sink and, you know, flags and, yeah, and you know, and see what license sticks. plates. Yeah. It's, it was strange. And, and speaking of Commissioner Rouleau, uh, Susan, you've got a play. You're going to give it to Commissioner Rouleau. First, we're going to take a look at this clip. If there's any more trouble, that side of the room is going to be expelled. Is that clear enough? Remarkably, I guess he was kicking out somebody from the convoy there. Don't make me stop this car. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, he's done that all the way through this commission. He took a risk this week when he kicked Brendan Miller, the aforementioned, out, because it does feed into the ideas, and you saw it on social media. He's a liberal-appointed judge. Mm -hmm. He's Trudeau's friend. Uh, he's, you know, this, this thing is rigged against us. But I think those of us who are watching him over these past six weeks, he's got the patience of a saint. He often lets people go on uh, longer than their time right. limit. Uh, he encourages people who are young or new or nervous to the stage. He makes them feel at ease. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he showed the proper deference and respect to the process. I think Canada was well served by these public hearings. I think, you know, the, the level of transparency that we saw, it, it was it was his quiet, dignified presence. And I, I think he, I, I have uh, nothing but good things to say about him. I thought he, he handled it well. And it's got to be one of the hardest jobs that an inquiry's ever had. Thank God neither of us did it. Yeah. Rachel? Yeah, I mean, I was right there in it watching almost every minute of this testimony. And, like, that man has stamina. That was a relentless six weeks days upon days, eight hours, if not longer, most days of testimony. And, you know, it's one thing for us to be writing down in the moment and reporting on it, but he's sitting there with his notebook, taking notes, and then having to be able to go back to all of these witnesses and ask his own follow-up questions. And I thought it was hard every day having to, like, distill this down mm -hmm. into stories. He's got to write a report now, uh, and that's going to be a mammoth process, kind of condensing all of this in, and, and he will have some help next week talking to some experts about kind of crafting whether there should be legislative amendments, for example. Uh, but I I certainly think he set the, set the tone right in that first day. He said, you know, this is not a trial and we're after the facts and we're going to take this seriously. And I thought from there it kind of, he made his place known in his position and as Susan said, has shown that time and time again over the last six weeks of how he's been able to manage something that is, you know, relentless. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like he needs a vacation, but can't really afford to take no, one until no, please February. Don't, please don't take a vacation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we need you. We need that yeah. report as yes, well. Yes, Appreciate we that. Susan Delacourt, Rachel Aiello, really appreciate that. And that's your Power Play Week in Politics. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. We'll be back here on Monday. Until then, have a great weekend, everyone. <laughs>